And let's now go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke 8, the uh, passage we're going to be seeing is on page 866 of a Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. And I want to start by talking about author Annette Simmons, who in 2015 wrote a book called Whoever Tells the Best Story Wins. And the subtitle is, Discover How the Right Story Told at the Right Time Has the Power to Persuade. I haven't read the book, uh, and so it might be strange where I'm starting with that book, but I have been compelled by just the title itself. And the fact that it's a New York Times bestseller book, and now it's on its second print, shows that a lot of people have been compelled by the book. And the reason is because humans are a story-driven people. Uh, We know this on one hand from everyday life, uh, that we all have a couple people in our lives that we would say, he or she knows how to tell a great story. You got those people? Like, you just know that they can say something completely uninteresting, but the way they're talking about it, like, they just know how to tell a story, because telling a great story is more of an art than it is a science. And uh, on the other hand, and I'm not just being, like, uh, self-deprecating here, there are those who have interesting things happening to them, like me, but can't tell a good story. And so no matter how, like, much you try to tell it, the reaction is just like, cool, cool, cool. Well, see you later. All right? So, uh, like, there's something about just telling a story. I don't know how people get good at it, but certain people, like, maybe they're just born with it. Uh, But more importantly, again, humans at their core are story-driven people. And it's fascinating. All of history, no matter where we're from, when we existed, we see and live our lives through the lens of the story of the world that we believe in most. And so when we get out of bed in the morning, we have a default story in which we approach our day with. And this story, whether we can fully articulate that or not, um, or whether we even know it or not, it answers these really big questions that all of us have. Like, why are we here? Uh, what is our purpose in this life? Like, what are we after? Like, I'm getting up, I'm doing things today. Why? Why am I doing them as opposed to, like, not doing them? And our story of the world shapes the way we spend our time, uh, the way we spend our energy, the way we think about things. It exposes what we love most. It exposes what we don't really care about. It exposes what our hopes are and then what we prioritize. And so, um, in the foundations course that Christy Scarpa and I, Christy Scarpa and I are co-teaching uh, right now, that that whole course, the foundations uh, of the Christian life and faith, begins with the first class. And the first really minute of the first class is this: God gave us a story. He gave us a story. And before Christianity is this kind of list of beliefs that you have to believe, or before it's a kind of kind of behavior that you have to do or stay away from, before all of that. It's a story, and the revelation of a story that we are invited to locate ourselves in. And that story is a God who is redeeming and restoring his fallen creation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the story. And it's a story that says that you are chosen, uh, that, that you are loved and renewed by faith in the, in the Son, And when that is believed, like not just acknowledged, but when that is like believed, it becomes the central operating system for us to live out from each and every day. And so this world has an unlimited amount of false stories that would blind people to the true story. And it is very important that each generation of the church is aware of the most prominent false stories in their day. 
so if you're a believer this morning, um, I ask you, like, what, what are the false stories of the world that threaten to draw you away from the Lord? What are the false stories that threaten to rob or dim your affections for the Lord? And this morning, if you're not a believer, uh, you know, first, as we always just want to say, we're, we're glad you're here. And we know it not, might not be easy to be here. And I hope you know and see and experience that this is a safe place to wrestle through your story. But I would ask you, what is the default story of the world that you are located in right now? What is the story that you would say is defining your actions and your desires day to day? Uh, there's a pastor out in Denver, Colorado. His name's J.T. English. Uh, he, he's talked a lot about this, the, the idea of story, and, and um, it was even helpful for him to list out some examples of false stories that are especially uh, prominent in our day today. And I'm just going to list out a few of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but just to give you an idea of what I'm thinking about. There is the, um, the false story of consumerism, that this world is about accumulating and consuming as many good things and experiences we can before we die. Now, nobody would say that if they were asked on a street survey, what do you believe in most? But practically, functionally in their life, everything's just about the next thing they can buy to make them just a little bit happier, or the next experience they can have, the next trip they can go on. And that's their default story, is what is the next thing? that's going to keep me happy or make me happy. Uh, there's the false story of rationalism, that um, whatever seems rational to us based upon our lived experience must be true. And it's true because it's rational, and everything goes through the lens of, if it's rational, it's true, and that's the default story. There's the very prominent false story of individualism, and individualism says that I am the center of my life, and so if it feels right to me, it is right for me. If it feels right to me, it is right for me, regardless of what others, what others might say. And the, the, the primary kind of tagline of individualism in our day is that we are just trying to be our own authentic selves. You hear that all the time. My story is to be my own authentic self and then live out of that. Uh, there's the false story of secularism, that there's no supernatural anything. Everything is just really right here. What you see is what you get. And so a freedom from religion is actually the key to human flourishing in our society. Religion is actually the, not only uh, like, a, a, like not a good option, it's actually a harmful option. And so a freedom from religion is the key to human flourishing. There's the false story of nationalism where uh, Christianity is kind of centered on American culture. And somebody's identity as an American is even higher than their identity as a Christian. And they feel more at home with people who are, have the same kind of ideolog ideological views in this country, more so than people who share a common faith in Christ but think differently politically. It's a false story of nationalism. Uh, one more, there's the false story of progressivism. And this is the mentality that across human history, things are progressively getting better. And the future will always be better than the past. And new is better than old. Because it is new. And so history is something to be overcome. Not something to be acknowledged or learned from. So again, not an exhaustive list, but these are false stories that I think are especially prominent in the world today. And when you open up the Bible and you were to read the Gospels... And you, and you read what's happening in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you see is Jesus restoring his disciples. 
you see a restoring of people who are following him and that Jesus ushers in a new story. And he saves us from the false stories that we are stuck in. And so this series leading up to Easter Day, we are going to see, Lord willing, a handful of encounters in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, where this restoring takes place. And we begin with a unique passage in the Gospel of Luke that actually shows multiple encounters. It will be familiar to many of you. But we're going to go to Luke 8, and we're going to pick it up in verse 40. And we're going to start just by reading the first three verses, 40 to 42. Now, when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. This passage, it is recorded in three of the four Gospels, all but the Gospel of John. It's actually, as we'll see, three stories in one. It's about Jairus and what was mentioned, Jairus' daughter. And then in the middle, there's a story of an unnamed woman, woman where we will eventually going to focus our time this morning. But what we see is that the Gospel writers were very clear and open about the fact that their accounts, their Gospels, were not meant to be just historical biographies like you might read. I love reading biographies. And I love autobiographies or kind of critical biographies of people from the past. And those biographies are to kind of show the life of a man or woman, to put it on display. But they're not necessarily meant to bring you to a decision. I rarely read a biography where I said, I need to make a decision about this person. But that is exactly what is unique about the Gospels. They bring you to this encounter with Jesus that forces a decision. And that Jesus never intended his story to be just heard and acknowledged. But again, to bring you to this place, either to decide to follow him or to reject him. And it's true for the people he encountered in the moment, in the stories themselves, and it's been true for everyone who has read the Gospels over the last 2,000 years. There's no such thing as a neutral response to Jesus. He either rewrites our story, you see, or we remain in the story we were to begin with. It's going to be one or it's going to be the other. And so the overarching question that people have in the Gospels and people have when they read the Gospels that hovers over it all is this. Is Jesus worth it? It's the question that hovers over all of it. Is he worth it? Is what I would gain from his story more than what I would have to give up in the story I'm currently in? Is he worth it? And it's interesting how those contrasts of responses to Jesus are evident in this very chapter. So the setup for this passage at the beginning of verse 20 is that Jesus returned. And if you're asking the question of the text, you would probably ask, well, return from where? Well, he was just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And in the passage before, there was an encounter with Jesus that a man who was demon-possessed had. He was so far gone, you could say, the people in that village gave up on him. And they put him down by the tombs, maybe hoping he would self-destruct because they were terrified of him. And Jesus came to shore and he encountered this man. And he healed this man. He transformed this man. And so you'd hear that, you'd think that, and go, man, the town and the village must think, that is awesome, that is amazing, we want more, right? Wrong. Wrong. 
Look back up, your Bible's open, up to verse 37 of chapter 8. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. So you have the same Jesus. One crowd is asking him to leave. They are rejecting him out of fear. They want nothing to do with him. And he comes back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to another crowd that is waiting for him and welcoming him. You see the contrast all throughout the gospel. Some are going to reject him. Some are going to embrace him. And now a man, a distinguished man, a ruler in the synagogue named Jairus, desperately falls at Jesus' feet because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. So at the end of verse 42, it says, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Jairus comes to him, Jesus decides to go with him, and this now leads to the encounter that we're going to dig into this morning. Look again at verse 43. We're going to read to 48. And there was a woman who had, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had immediately healed. Verse 48. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. All right, we're going to see three movements of this encounter, starting with the story before Jesus. The story before Jesus, um, Luke tells us two things about this woman, and two things only. Uh, They're the same two things that Mark and Matthew share in their gospel as well. Number one, she has a chronic bleeding condition. And number two, she has spent all her money on doctors trying to heal it. And now after 12 years, she is still bleeding and out of money. The blood still flows, you see, but the money has stopped. And so there are layers to her story of suffering here. Uh, There is the physical side. She has come to the dangerous intersection of length of pain and then helplessness to relieve it. You you know, it's one thing to suffer physically for, for 12 years with the same thing. That's a long time. But when you combine that with the expiration of options to get better, there now leads to a loss of hope. It's a dangerous intersection. And as we know, dangerous intersections are where accidents can happen. It's where people get hurt. And so she's in this very vulnerable state to be trapped in her story of pain and sickness. Where her singular aim when she gets up in the morning for 12 years has been to stop the bleeding. And it hasn't happened. There's an author out in California, Derek Rishmay, who himself suffers from chronic joint and muscle pain. Uh, He uh, writes this, quote, 
waiting in chronic pain can wear you down. Shrivel your love, fill you with self-pity, and poison your heart. Some of you can resonate with long-term chronic pain. And I can only imagine there's a level of struggle when you know others can't really relate to you. And false stories, they, they poison our hearts. That's an interesting phrase. This woman's daily story of suffering over 12 years has, has worn her down, and, and particularly within chronic bleeding, uh, that it leads to an, an anemic position, a, a, a depleted position, a miscoloring, a, a weakening of, uh, you, you see it and you say that person is unwell. Certain people have chronic pain that other people can't notice right away. This woman's chronic pain, her condition, leaves her in an anemic state, a weakened state. And yet, that is not all. In fact, that might not even be the worst part for her. That beyond the physical pain, the context of her illness is socially crippling. And this is where context and knowing of the scripture and the Mosaic law lends some context and meaning here. Because her condition would render her, according to Mosaic law, ceremonially unclean. Ceremonially unclean. And Luke is implying a connection here to Leviticus chapter 15, verses 19 through 30, which provides basic regulations, including regulations on menstrual bleeding for women. And while Luke does not specifically say that this bleeding condition was menstrual bleeding, the expression in the passage, discharge of blood, or it could also be translated flow of blood, is an expression that is only found in Leviticus 15, verse 25 where a woman with a discharge of blood in the midst of menstrual bleeding is ceremonially unclean for seven days. And then it says this in verse 25 of Leviticus 15. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Here's what that means, amongst other things. Her life is now defined by social isolation on top of physical pain. Because a Jewish person could not come into contact with someone who is unclean, otherwise they too would be deemed unclean for a period of time. So this woman has been regarded unsafe to be around for 12 years. It's not hard to imagine that whatever family or community she had when this condition began has long since left. She lives her days with a vivid reminder that she is an outcast, that she is not someone who people would draw near to. And she's reminded of it every single day. It's not hard then to see that her life is consumed with becoming well. And the story of her life is to become well. Waking up and with this reminder, physically and socially, she is unwell. And again, if we were to pause and just reflect on this and knowing that across this room, there are varying levels of resonance with this unnamed woman that you might have. Uh, Perhaps the reason she is not named 
as opposed to Jairus, who was named, is because she represents every name, at least on some level. Perhaps the reason why she is unnamed is because she represents every name, at least on some level. And we also know that every society deems a certain group or groups of people as unclean, even if they wouldn't use that word. There are certain groups of people that get marginalized or pushed to the outskirts because they do not belong for various reasons. And there are spoken and unspoken expectations that leave people feeling isolated because of who they are, feeling like outsiders, feeling like they were never one of the crowd. And the crowd's aware of them so that they can stay away from them. Um, One that I know gets a lot of attention today and still today and across our country's history are the racial or ethnic divides. And if you talk to minorities who dwell in majority white spaces, they would be honest if you asked them that there's a feeling of otherness compared to what is considered mainstream or best that they feel each day. Uh, Shai Lin, who's an author and a hip-hop artist who who is black, he, he said this, Quote, being black in America is about the exhaustion of constantly feeling I have to assert my humanity in front of some white people I'm meeting for the first time. To let them know, hey, I'm not a threat. You don't need to be afraid. It's about having to explain to my four-year-old son at his mostly white Christian school that God made him in his image and that his skin is beautiful after he told me, Daddy, I don't want brown skin. I want white skin. So there are groups in every society, including ours, that consciously or subconsciously are seen as other. And even if you don't find yourself in a group that is considered an outsider, again, I think everyone can experience this and knows what this feels like, at least on some level. At some point in your life, you had the feeling of being an outsider, and it doesn't feel great. There's an in-group, and you're not in that in-group for whatever reason. And there are several reasons why people as individuals might struggle with seeing themselves as different, as not fitting the norms, as maybe being damaged goods because of something they've experienced in their past, of being less than, of maybe having a professional career path that is not the way it's supposed to be done. And so even within your career, you know you got that way, into that place in a way that others haven't, and you're kind of reminded of that, that you're not, and you haven't, done it the way it usually is done. Perhaps your relationships and your marriage is not according to the norms. Perhaps you find yourselves on the outside of a friend group that you used to be in. Middle school, high school, that you had a friend group, and now seemingly overnight, because things change so fast, now you're on the outside of this group. This is the woman's story before Jesus. Let's keep going to number two. The encounter with Jesus. Uh, So in this state, the woman would, in her desperation, and I think as a sign of her resolve and her strength, is determined to get to Jesus. We don't know a lot of what was going on in her mind, but she saw Jesus, saw the crowds around Jesus, and she was determined to get to Jesus. And while this says much about her, which we'll get to in a moment, I think it first tells us something about Jesus. Again, if you were to go back and just comb through the Gospels and read widely throughout the Gospels and his encounters with people, you'll notice that he is drawn to the very people who the rest of society is repulsed by. The ones deemed unclean, unseen, 
invisible in society, are the very ones that he draws near to himself. It's like this gravitational pull he has towards others and those others towards him. And we've been talking a lot in our First Timothy series about ushering in the upside-down kingdom of God. One of the most shining examples of that in the Gospels is that Jesus sees the unseen. He sees the unseen. And he came not to cater to the successful ones, or the influential ones, or the ones that you might think that if you, if you change them, it'll trickle down and it'll change everyone. That was not his strategy. He came for the desperate. He says, guys, I came not for the healthy. I came for the sick. Uh, you could put it this way. I came for those who are not settled in their story. I came for those who are searching for a new story. We saw it first in Jairus, who was, by the way, a someone. He was a synagogue ruler. And yet he came to Jesus and fell at his feet. Why? Even though he was a someone, a powerful one, he was desperate. Why? His 12-year-old was dying. His only daughter. And even if you're a someone, when you reach the limits of your abilities, you're going to Jesus. You're searching for a new story. And then right after the contrast, we see it. In the unnamed woman who was a no one. In the brilliance of the gospel writers putting these stories together. Jesus doesn't care about status. He doesn't care about class. He sees people and he sees those whose stories are failing them and are in search of a new story. And he draws those people to himself. And so this woman sees Jesus Again, surrounded by a crowd of people who are pressing in and around him. And you know, um, there are certain scenes of the Bible that as you read it, you go, man, what would that look like? I have no idea what that would look like. And you're trying to picture it in your mind's eye and you can't get there. Um, This story is not one of them. You know very well what it looks like for a crowd to be pressing in on someone. You see it every day online. We are a celebrity-crazed culture. You see it with celebrities in the city or going in and out of a restaurant. And there's just a crowd there. Why? Because they just want to be by them. You see it at the 50-yard line at the Super Bowl when people are going to shake hands in the middle. There's just a crowd and mass of people by them, right? There are masses of individuals who want to see their stories intersect with a story of someone else. And so they just want to be by them. The only difference now compared to the first century is that not everyone in this crowd had a smartphone in their hand to take a picture of it, to show the world. I was there. I was in the crowd. But this woman risks it all to get to Jesus. She risks it all. And she presses into the crowd. And Luke doesn't even tell us why she has it in her mind that if I touch him, I'm going to be better. Why did she think that? Like, what led her to believe that? Did somebody tell her that? That might not have been sound theology. But she knows in her head, I got to get to Jesus. Uh, In her book, Sacred Endurance, Trillia Newbell says this, quote, We won't always have the heart to endure. We won't always be eager to keep going. And our heart will fail us if this life is all about us. But it isn't all about us. It's all about him. And because it's about him, we fight to remember The irony, I think, is that this woman went to Jesus because it wasn't all about her. She was willing to risk it because it was all about him. 
And in that sense, she doesn't allow her fear to overpower her. And she's going to get Jesus. Stunning display. Just pause here. Just hover here. A stunning display of strength in a woman who at this point has been described in a state of weakness. Uh, Another quote, this time by Charles Spurgeon. uh, On this very passage and situation, he applies it this way. He says, quote, If you've been praying long, can I ask how many of you have been praying long? That one thing, it's been months now. It's been years now. It's been decades long now. You've been praying long? Is that you? If you've been praying long and your case appears to be hopeless, despair will whisper, trouble not the master. But Christ is never troubled by our prayer. It is our want or lack of prayer that troubles him. Even after the worst has come to the worst, we shall never trouble him if we continue in our prayers. But if on any account we cease from them, then indeed is his heart grieved. Her persistence to get to Jesus leads to a rewriting of her story, which leads to number three, the restorying from Jesus. You go from the story before Jesus to the encounter with Jesus to now the restorying from Jesus. Verse 46, Jesus becomes aware of the touch. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And this leads to a lot of questions from me. Like, like, and, and you know what? It's a lot of questions that Luke does not seem very keen on wanting to answer for me. Like, take it plainly. Jesus knew something happened. Upon the touch, something went out from him. But he didn't know who it was. Like, did he really not know? Like, I thought he was truly God. Jesus knows everything. It's weird for Jesus to ask a question as if he doesn't know something. But this is where, if you're into theology and the doctrine of Christology, of who Jesus is, this is a fascinating verse. He's God, and he knows everything. And he is man, truly man, who felt the touch on his clothes and didn't see who it was because there was a crowd there. It's a stunning and mysterious example of his nature. He knows power went out from him that can only come from him because he's God, you see. But he didn't know who touched him because he's a man. And the people around him didn't know how to answer. And then it's Peter, because it's always Peter, isn't it? Like, it's always got to be Peter who speaks, and he's like, "Um, all right, Jesus, this is going to be a little awkward, all right? I mean, no offense, but at the risk of sounding obvious, everyone is touching you. Like, let's go. There's a crowd here, but Jairus' house, remember? Like, we're going. But Jesus knows. No, he goes, no, 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 no. Something just happened. Something miraculous just happened. And so now pan the camera back to the woman. This woman realizes she's been exposed. We don't know how. She knew. Maybe others pointed her out. Maybe people started to look around and saw, oh, she's here. I guess people knew about this woman. They knew enough about her to avoid her. And now in the crowd, she's here. Uh, Maybe she just knew internally she had to confess it. 
because Jesus was stopping and this crowd's not moving anymore. But can you, and I know, and this is a familiar story for many of you, can you just reflect here for a moment with me of the emotions she's experiencing in this moment? Like, starting with this, she touched him. And Luke says, she immediately stopped bleeding. Twelve years. Twelve years. Okay, can we do this? 2011. Go back to 2011 in your mind. What do you remember about 2011? Was it a good year for you? Rough year? Probably a little bit of both? Do you have any memories from 2011? She started bleeding in 2011. And it hasn't stopped. And then in a moment, she touches his garment. It's gone. Like, on the one hand, she's got to be shocked in this moment. Um, Relieved, maybe? Like, in a state of awe, like she's sitting here going, man, it worked. My goodness, it worked. Nothing else worked. All the other money I spent, it didn't solve it. The best doctors couldn't handle it. She touches Jesus and it worked. Combine that emotion, hang on to that emotion, and combine it with the fact that now she's getting called out. And the crowd has stopped, and all eyes have turned to her. And what's that emotion? So I think we can understand when Luke says she came trembling and she falls to the ground and she tells her story, like why she was there in the first place, the why she touched him, what happened when she touched him. Do you think her voice was breaking up a little bit? Do you think she was fumbling to find the right words? Do you think she was talking 100 miles an hour trying to get it all out before people would stone her or remove her? And now it's the moment of truth between verses 47 and 48. It's been revealed an unclean woman touched Jesus and probably many others in the midst of the crowd maybe touched Jairus. She's confessed it. End of verse 47. Now what? The passage holds its breath. And the camera pans back to Jesus. And he's in full control now to do whatever he wants to do. What's he going to do? I know you've heard the story before, but can you picture him? kneeling down to the eye level with this woman on the ground and he addresses her, hear me, the only time in all the Gospels he calls somebody this name, looks her in the eye and says, daughter, the only time, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What would that have been like for her? I wonder when the last time someone looked her in the eye. And he doesn't talk about how great he is. He commends her. He commends her strength. He declares before all, your faith has made you well. This woman has made a decision. And she is healed. And Alistair Begg says here, her cure is not because she touched him, but because she trusted him. 
She trusted him. And so now we got a couple minutes just to wrap up. Um, did she know everything about Jesus when she touched him? Probably not. Did she know her Old Testament scriptures and the coming of a Messiah that was promised in the prophet of Isaiah? We don't know. Was she clear on all the doctrines of salvation of how to be saved? Probably not. What we do know is that she saw Jesus. She was drawn to Jesus. And she trusted Jesus. And God rewrote her story with a childlike faith. Go in peace. And so as we do finish to apply this to our lives, I'll tell you what the application is not. It's not if you believe in Jesus, he'll make all your problems go away in this world. It's not that if you're dealing with pain of any kind, the physical kind, the chronic kind, the emotional kind, the spiritual kind, that, uh, that if you're struggling with that, that that must mean you don't have enough faith and you just got to do better. It's not application. The truth is so much better than that. It's the fact that this bleeding woman's story interacts with all of our stories because we all needed someone to enter into our story and accept us, not be repulsed by us. We've all had a story before Jesus, or we have one right now. And what we need is not to go and do better, but as someone to enter into our story, look us in the eye, call us son or daughter, and say, go in peace. And it's also the fact that this passage illustrates the great exchange that takes place by faith. It illustrated it right before our eyes. Jesus emptied of his power in order to heal. Did you see it? And how does he do it? Like, how can Jesus say, your faith has saved you and made you well? How can he say it to her? How can he say it to you? It's because he knows he will bleed for her. And he will experience the physical pain. He will experience the social shame and the divine isolation on the cross. That's why he came. And we're about to sing it in the moment, the old hymn, Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wondrous cross. Bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. All who gather here by grace draw near and bless your name. God is the only one who can rewrite our story and make us whole. And he's inviting us into it. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed by your word. We are humbled by your word. We are grateful that you have invited us into your story of redeeming and restoring your people through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I do pray now for anyone here this morning or anyone listening who know that right now they're located in a story before Jesus. I pray that you would just give them the eyes to see that that invitation is before them. A simple like faith to trust in you, to trust the price that you paid on the cross is enough for us. And that, Lord, you are inviting us to go in peace. And so, Father, I pray that we would be affirmed and confirmed this morning in the reality that you are worth it, that your story is the story, and that we would live our lives out from within it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing that song, Oh, the Wonderful Cross.